2. Divine Omnipotence Nothing which implies contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. St. Thomas Aquinas If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy, and if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. The possibility of answering it depends on showing that the terms good and almighty, and perhaps also the term happy, are equivocal. For it must be admitted from the outset that if the popular meanings attached to these words are the best or the only possible meanings, then the argument is unanswerable. In this chapter, I shall make some comments on the idea of omnipotence, and in the following, some on the idea of goodness. Omnipotence means power to do all or everything. And we are told in Scripture that with God all things are possible. It is common enough in argument with an unbeliever to be told that God, if he existed and were good, would do this or that. And then if we point out that the proposed action is impossible, to be met with the retort, but I thought God was supposed to be able to do anything. This raises the whole question of impossibility. In ordinary usage, the word impossible generally implies a suppressed clause beginning with the word unless. Thus it is impossible for me to see the street from where I sit writing at this moment. That is, it is impossible to see the street unless I go up to the top floor where I shall be high enough to overlook the intervening building. If I had broken my leg, I should say, but it is impossible to go up to the top floor, meaning, however, that it is impossible unless some friends turn up who will carry me. Now let us advance to a different plane of impossibility, by saying, it is, at any rate, impossible to see the street so long as I remain where I am, and the intervening building remains where it is. Someone might add, unless the nature of space or of vision were different from what it is. I do not know what the best philosophers and scientists would say to this, but I should have to reply, I don't know whether space and vision could possibly have been of such a nature as you suggest. Now it is clear that the words could possibly, here, refer to some absolute kind of possibility or impossibility which is different from the relative possibilities and impossibilities we have been considering. I cannot say whether seeing round corners is, in this new sense, possible or not, because I do not know whether it is self-contradictory or not. But I know very well that if it is self-contradictory, it is absolutely impossible. The absolutely impossible may also be called the intrinsically impossible because it carries its impossibility within itself, instead of borrowing it from other impossibilities which, in their turn, depend upon others. It has no unless clause attached to it. It is impossible under all conditions, and in all worlds, and for all agents. All agents here includes God himself. His omnipotence means power to do all that is intrinsically possible, not to do the intrinsically impossible. You may attribute miracles to him, but not nonsense. This is no limit to his power. If you choose to say, God can give a creature free will and at the same time withhold free will from it, you have not succeeded in saying anything about God. Meaningless combinations of words do not suddenly acquire meaning simply because we prefix them to the two other words, God can. It remains true that all things are possible with God. The intrinsic impossibilities are not things, but non-entities. It is no more possible for God than for the weakest of his creatures to carry out both of two mutually exclusive alternatives. Not because his power meets an obstacle, but because nonsense remains nonsense, even when we talk it about God. It should, however, be remembered that human reasoners often make mistakes, either by arguing from false data or by inadvertence in the argument itself.
we may thus come to think things possible which are really impossible and vice versa. Footnote. For example, every good conjuring trick does something which to the audience, with their data and their power of reasoning, seems self-contradictory. We ought, therefore, to use great caution in defining those intrinsic impossibilities which even omnipotence cannot perform. What follows is to be regarded less as an assertion of what they are than a sample of what they might be like. The inexorable laws of nature, which operate in defiance of human suffering or desert, which are not turned aside by prayer, seem, at first sight, to furnish a strong argument against the goodness and power of God. I am going to submit that not even omnipotence could create a society of free souls without at the same time creating a relatively independent and inexorable nature. There is no reason to suppose that self-consciousness, the recognition of a creature by itself as a self, can exist except in contrast with an other, a something which is not the self. It is against an environment, and preferably a social environment, an environment of other selves, that the awareness of myself stands out. This would raise a difficulty about the consciousness of God if we were mere theists. Being Christians, we learn from the doctrine of the Blessed Trinity that something analogous to society exists within the divine being from all eternity, that God is love, not merely in the sense of being the platonic form of love, but because within him the concrete reciprocities of love exist before all worlds and are thence derived to the creatures. Again, the freedom of a creature must mean freedom to choose, and choice implies the existence of things to choose between. A creature with no environment would have no choices to make, so that freedom, like self-consciousness, if they are not indeed the same thing, again demands the presence to the self of something other than the self. The minimum condition of self-consciousness and freedom, then, would be that the creature should apprehend God and, therefore, itself as distinct from God. It is possible that such creatures exist, aware of God and themselves, but of no fellow creatures. If so, their freedom is simply that of making a single naked choice of loving God more than the self, or the self more than God. But a life so reduced to essentials is not imaginable to us. As soon as we attempt to introduce the mutual knowledge of fellow creatures, we run up against the necessity of nature. People often talk as if nothing were easier than for two naked minds to meet or become aware of each other. But I see no possibility of their doing so except in a common medium which forms their external world or environment. Even our vague attempt to imagine such a meeting between disembodied spirits usually slips in surreptitiously the idea of, at least, a common space and common time to give the co-in, coexistence, a meaning. And space and time are already an environment. But more than this is required. If your thoughts and passions were directly present to me, like my own, without any mark of externality or otherness, how should I distinguish them from mine? And what thoughts or passions could we begin to have without objects to think and feel about? Nay, could I even begin to have the conception of external and other, unless I had experience of an external world? You may reply as a Christian that God and Satan do, in fact, affect my consciousness in this direct way without signs of externality. Yes, and the result is that most people remain ignorant of the existence of both. We may therefore suppose that if human souls affected one another directly and immaterially, it would be a rare triumph of faith and insight for any one of them to believe in the existence of the others. It would be harder for me to know my neighbor under such conditions than it now is for me to know God. For in recognizing the impact of God upon me, I am now helped by things that reach me through the external world, such as the tradition of the church, holy scripture, and the conversation of religious friends. What we need for human society is exactly what we have, a neutral something, neither you nor I, which we can both manipulate so as to make signs to each other. I can talk to you because we can both set up sound waves in the common air between us. 
Matter which keeps souls apart also brings them together. It enables each of us to have an outside as well as an inside, so that what are acts of will and thought for you are noises and glances for me. You are enabled not only to be, but to appear, and hence I have the pleasure of making your acquaintance. Society, then, implies a common field or world in which its members meet. If there is an angelic society, as Christians have usually believed, then the angels also must have such a world or field. Something which is to them as matter, in the modern, not the scholastic sense, is to us. But if matter is to serve as a neutral field, it must have a fixed nature of its own. If a world or material system had only a single inhabitant, it might conform at every moment to his wishes. Trees for his sake would crowd into a shade. But if you were introduced into a world which thus varied at my every whim, you would be quite unable to act in it and would thus lose the exercise of your free will. Nor is it clear that you could make your own presence known to me, all the matter by which you attempted to make signs to me being already in my control and therefore not capable of being manipulated by you. Again, if matter has a fixed nature and obeys constant laws, not all states of matter will be equally agreeable to the wishes of a given soul, nor all equally beneficial for that particular aggregate of matter which he calls his body. If fire comforts that body at a certain distance, it will destroy it when the distance is reduced. Hence, even in a perfect world, the necessity for those danger signals which the pain fibers in our nerves are apparently designed to transmit. Does this mean an inevitable element of evil in the form of pain in any possible world? I think not. For while it may be true that the least sin is an incalculable evil, the evil of pain depends on degree, and pains below a certain intensity are not feared or resented at all. No one minds the process of warm, beautifully hot, too hot, it stings, which warns him to withdraw his hand from exposure to the fire. And, if I may trust my own feeling, a slight aching in the legs as we climb into bed after a good day's walking is, in fact, pleasurable. Yet again, if the fixed nature of matter prevents it from being always, and in all its dispositions, equally agreeable even to a single soul, much less is it possible for the matter of the universe at any moment to be distributed so that it is equally convenient and pleasurable to each member of a society. If a man traveling in one direction is having a journey downhill, a man going in the opposite direction must be going uphill. If even a pebble lies where I want it to lie, it cannot, except by a coincidence, be where you want it to lie. And this is very far from being an evil. On the contrary, it furnishes occasion for all those acts of courtesy, respect, and unselfishness by which love and good humor and modesty express themselves. But it certainly leaves the way open to a great evil, that of competition and hostility. And if souls are free, they cannot be prevented from dealing with the problem by competition instead of by courtesy. And once they have advanced to actual hostility, they can then exploit the fixed nature of matter to hurt one another. The permanent nature of wood, which enables us to use it as a beam, also enables us to use it for hitting our neighbor on the head. The permanent nature of matter in general means that when human beings fight, the victory ordinarily goes to those who have superior weapons, skill, and numbers, even if their cause is unjust. We can, perhaps, conceive of a world in which God corrected the results of this abuse of free will by his creatures at every moment, so that a wooden beam became as soft as grass when it was used as a weapon and the air refused to obey me if I attempted to set up in it the sound waves that carry lies or insults. But such a world would be one in which wrong actions were impossible, and in which, therefore, freedom of the will would be void. Nay, if the principle were carried out to its logical conclusion, evil thoughts would be impossible, for the cerebral matter which we use in thinking would refuse its task when we attempted to frame them. All matter in the neighborhood of a wicked man would be liable to undergo unpredictable alterations. 
that God can and does, on occasions, modify the behavior of matter and produce what we call miracles is part of the Christian faith. But the very conception of a common and therefore stable world demands that these occasions should be extremely rare. In a game of chess, you can make certain arbitrary concessions to your opponent, which stand to the ordinary rules of the game as miracles stand to the laws of nature. You can deprive yourself of a castle, or allow the other man sometimes to take back a move made inadvertently. But if you conceded everything that at any moment happened to suit him, if all his moves were irrevocable, and if all your pieces disappeared whenever their position on the board was not to his liking, then you could not have a game at all. So it is with the life of souls in a world. Fixed laws, consequences unfolding by causal necessity, the whole natural order, are at once the limits within which their common life is confined, and also the sole condition under which any such life is possible. Try to exclude the possibility of suffering which the order of nature and the existence of free wills involve, and you will find that you have excluded life itself. As I said before, this account of the intrinsic necessities of a world is meant merely as a specimen of what they might be. What they really are, only omniscience has the data and the wisdom to see. But they are not likely to be less complicated than I have suggested. Needless to say, complicated here refers solely to the human understanding of them. We are not to think of God arguing as we do from an end, coexistence of free spirits, to the conditions involved in it, but rather of a single, utterly self-consistent act of creation which to us appears, at first sight, as the creation of many independent things, and then as the creation of things mutually necessary. Even we can rise a little beyond the conception of mutual necessities as I have outlined it, can reduce matter as that which separates souls and matter as that which brings them together under the single concept of plurality, whereof separation and togetherness are only two aspects. With every advance in our thought, the unity of the creative act and the impossibility of tinkering with the creation as though this or that element of it could have been removed will become more apparent. Perhaps this is not the best of all possible universes, but the only possible one. Possible worlds can mean only worlds that God could have made but didn't. The idea of that which God could have done involves a too anthropomorphic conception of God's freedom. Whatever human freedom means, divine freedom cannot mean indeterminacy between alternatives and choice of one of them. Perfect goodness can never debate about the end to be attained, and perfect wisdom cannot debate about the means most suited to achieve it. The freedom of God consists in the fact that no cause other than himself produces his acts, and no external obstacle impedes them that his own goodness is the root from which they all grow, and his own omnipotence the air in which they all flower. And that brings us to our next subject, the divine goodness. Nothing so far has been said of this, and no answer attempted to the objection that if the universe must, from the outset, admit the possibility of suffering, then absolute goodness would have left better than not to create. I am aware of no human scales in which such a portentous question can be weighed. Some comparison between one state of being and another can be made, but the attempt to compare being and not being ends in mere words. Quote, it would be better for me not to exist, end quote. In what sense for me? How should I, if I did not exist, profit by not existing? Our design is a less formidable one. It is only to discover how, perceiving a suffering world, and being assured on quite different grounds that God is good, we are to conceive that goodness and that suffering without contradiction. <laughs>